indeed. I hope it is well with our souls this morning. Thank you, Dave, Becky, where are they? Oh. <laughs> Hannah, Trevor, for organizing and lead us through that first part of our service this morning. Indeed, it's always great to share in the breaking of bread, to focus on who God is and his love for us. Uh, In case people aren't aware, we will be continuing this trial combined service uh, the last Sunday of the month through to the end of September, at which point the elders will look and just uh, make a determination as to whether or not, if that's what we'll keep doing for a longer period. Please let me know if you have any feedback on the combined service, uh, positive or negative, that you'd like the elders to know about. Last Friday was the final day of class for the public elementary schools. I think the, so that the high school stu- schools have had their graduation ceremonies already, and college and university students, I think, have been out for quite a while now. When you think of school... What memories come to mind to you at the end of the school season? Oh. <laughs> Anyone here? Was school something you really loved and you were disappointed to see come to an end? No takers on that one. I know I wasn't in that group. I didn't mind school, but I was quite happy when it was over. What about uh, the teachers out there? Oh, even more so. Okay. What makes learning a good experience? Maybe easier for some some than others, but do you remember any really particular teachers, any really great teachers come to mind? Okay, a few heads nodding. Did anyone choose to go to a school or a class because of the reputation or because of the teachers? In Jesus' day, people saw or heard about an individual. They followed them and they learned from them. In essence, they handpicked their teachers. I would suggest we still do the same to some extent. Many of us have common interests in studying God's word. We meet together, learn from each other. We gather in places and hear speakers that have a, a certain leaning towards a topic, in this case, Christianity and Jesus. We read books. We listen to YouTube messages, podcasts, and other medium. We only graduate from the school of life, or what I tend to call the school of hard knocks, when we leave this world. And there are some subjects that we all need to take to heart. And one in particular that some have accepted and some have rejected over the last 2,000 years, namely Jesus. So the subject of Jesus, who is he? And what should we do about it? Or what, more likely, or more so, what should we do about him? Before we open up our passage this morning, let's just open with a word of prayer, shall we? Our Father, we just pause and we just marvel that we're here because the God of creation, the God who holds everything in his hands, who sustains everything, who knows all, who is all-powerful, who has been there from the beginning, 
created and loved us. Father, it's so amazing to think of how big you are and how tiny we are, and yet you loved us and you care for us, and we just marvel at that. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for your word that we can open this morning and look into. And Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds as we've already been singing about. Help us, Father, just to learn more about you, to appreciate more who you are and your love for us, and help us to respond to that. We ask in Jesus' name. As was mentioned this morning, we'll be looking at the Gospel of John, uh, the second part of chapter 1, starting at verse 19. Uh, If you're following along in one of the brown Bibles in the seats, uh, John 1 can be found on page 1646. I'm going to start, we're starting our passage this morning from verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, he said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not unworthy to tie. Sorry, I am not unworthy, not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So who was John the Baptist? The Jewish historian Josephus noted John was a good man who commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and to be baptized. Jim Melnick introduced us to John the Baptist last week. We noted that John himself was not the light, He came only as a witness to the light. The people of Jerusalem, indeed the broader area of Judea, the whole region of the Jordan, are hearing about this person who's out there in the desert, calling on them to repent, to turn away from the things that are displeasing to God and make a radical change in their lives. So the priests and Levites were sent out to find who this John character was. Go out and see who this person is, this teacher, who's developing a huge following of people the repenting of their ways, and the being baptized. Because this isn't the way we do things around here. This is problematic. There's something wrong. Now, John had readily told them he wasn't the Christ, so then they turn and ask if he's Elijah. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, before John was born, the angel Gabriel went to Zechariah, John's father, and told him this about his future son. He will go out on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist did come in the spirit and power of Elijah as the angel Gabriel said he would. He had the same objective as the Old Testament prophet Elijah and he had the same qualifications. Both were sent by God. 
The spirit and power of Elijah in the Old Testament can restore things because the change people had to make was outward. By doing things others could see. They, made it, they can make it look as if they were following God, even if their hearts weren't there. The spirit and power of Elijah in the New Testament is to change people's hearts so they'll be open to the message of the gospel or the good news of Jesus. People must choose to accept the gift of salvation Jesus offers. We can do all the right things. We could make it appear as if our hearts are right with God, but God knows whether they truly are or aren't. Jesus said all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He said, if you're willing to accept it, Elijah was. He was the the Elijah who was to come. In other words, the spirit and the power of Elijah in the New Testament is achieved once a person realizes their need for a savior and accepts Jesus as that savior. The priests and Levites figured if he's not the Christ, if he's not the Elijah, what next? Well, then he must be the prophet, right? In Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18, we read this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. This is what they are thinking about when they asked Elijah if he was the prophet. And interestingly enough, they didn't follow the words uh, of that prophet. But John again says no, and you can picture their frustration. Well then, who are you? Give us something so we can report back. He responds by using the words of Isaiah the prophet from verse, chapter 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And going a few verses past that, we read, every valley sh- shall be raised up Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So then what we have is some of the Pharisees are there. And they jump in. Ask John, what gives you the right or the authority to baptize people? The Pharisees were huge on ensuring people followed the rules or the oral traditions, and many of those had to do with purity. The approach was based on what people can do and, again, be seen on the outside. But John was preaching this baptism of repentance. Again, change from within, not what you see on the outside. And this doesn't make sense to the Pharisees. They can't figure this out. And he doesn't answer their question right away on where his authority comes from. He just tells them he baptizes with water, but there's one in their midst they don't even recognize. We've got the advantage of having the Bible, of knowing what happened after. We know this is Jesus he's talking about. But they didn't get it. In the first part of this chapter, we were told the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. Jesus may have been in the crowd right then that day, or he may have just been in the general area. We know that the next day, John does see Jesus. We also know John was a humble man and he realized his position relative to Jesus. He knows his job isn't to draw people to him necessarily. It's to get people's attention so he can point them to Jesus. 
he noticed he's not even worthy of untying the thongs on Jesus' sandals. Now, in those days, the rabbinic movement was gaining momentum and there was concern from the leaders that some of the students were getting a little too attached to their teachers. They're starting to worship them and there was a bit of concern with that. And so a mandate was issued that said this, All services which a slave does for his master will a pupil do for his teacher, with the exception of untying his shoes. Interesting. But John realized that not only is he not worthy of untying his shoes, he's not worthy of being a slave even. He realized that the one that he's pointing people to comes from heaven. He had seen the Spirit descend on Jesus when he baptized him. Later on, John says, he, meaning Jesus, must decrease, or sorry, must increase. Ooh, let's get that one right. He must increase and I must decrease. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him, except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify, this is the Son of God. Although John's gospel doesn't refer to Jesus' baptism, it was at this point John had seen at his baptism the Spirit descending on Jesus. Telling people Jesus is the Son of God would have been very offensive to some, as this was a term usually reserved for an emperor. Now, Passover was coming soon, and the Jewish people were been very familiar with the notion of sacrifices. Two lambs were offered up as a sacrifice every single day. And there were other days, other feasts, other reasons that other sacrifices and offerings had to be offered. So they're quite familiar with this concept. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And in doing so, starts to put the Old Testament in a different light, linking Jesus to it. For example, in Isaiah 53, he says, The Messiah will be led like a lamb to slaughter. And Carol read from Isaiah 53 this morning. I won't read the, um, all four of the verses that she read, but let's just reread verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In the book of Genesis, God had told Abraham he would be a father to many nations, and his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Then in Genesis 22, we read, God told Abraham to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his only son. So how is he going to end up with all his descendants if his only son gets sacrificed? And when his son Isaac asked where the lamb for the burnt offering was, Abraham told him, God himself will provide the lamb. He didn't, however, until Abraham was at the point of sacrificing his son in obedience to what God told him. And then God did provide the sacrifice. He also provided the lamb in the New Testament. 
And that lamb was Jesus. His only son was the sacrifice for our sin. Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 53. And he's the fulfillment of hundreds of other prophecies in the Bible. John says that Jesus surpassed me because he was before me. John and Jesus were cousins. John was older. So how could Jesus have been before him? The Bible doesn't tell us much about their upbringing, whether or not they hung around when they were younger. But it does tell us that even those closest to the disciples didn't fully understand who Jesus really was and what he meant until he was crucified and rose from the dead. And how could Jesus have been before him? Because as we read earlier in John, he was there in the beginning. Verse 35 says, The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. So Andrew and John... John, the writer of this gospel, not John the Baptist, were the two disciples who had heard John the Baptist speaking. It's important to note, they turned from following John and start following Jesus. That's the way it was intended to be. Likewise for us, it's easy to agree with the person's teaching, to associate with them, but that person should only be pointing us to God, to Jesus. Jesus himself was a great teacher, And his teaching points us to the reason he came to this earth. And he also followed through on what he taught about himself. He taught, as we've sung about, as we've thought about already this morning, that he was going to die, that he would rise, and that he would draw us to himself. He knows what's in disciples' hearts, why they're following John, and he himself turns around and says, well, what do you want? They didn't know it at the time, but it wasn't a what they're looking for. It was a who they're looking for. And that answer is found in a person in Jesus. They ask where he's staying or abiding, and he invites them to come and see. At this point in his mystery, Jesus was likely staying in various places, probably nowhere that he would say belonged to him on earth. But he also lived in union with his heavenly father, even when he walked the earth. The invitation to come and they will see is not to see where he's living on earth, but it's an invitation to come and see who he is and what God has in store for them. The same applies to us. Jesus invites us to come to him in doing so to see who he is and the life that he has in store for us. That's what it's all about. Not just the left foot in or the right foot. It's both feet in. A couple of the songs we sang earlier spoke about that. We sang about the recognition that we have. We have a home here and in heaven with him. And we want to abide with him. Verse 40 says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he he brought him to Jesus. 
Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Jesus gives Simon a new, a new name. It's interesting. He just met him. And yet he knows Simon and what's in his heart. Interestingly, Jesus only calls him Peter when he's telling him, or when he's telling Peter, that he's going to deny him three times before the rooster crows. So we know that Andrew ran and told his brother about Jesus. What do you and I talk about with others? I guess the weather might be high on our list. Maybe something significant in the news. Last vacation, last trip. How often is the Lord in our conversations? And it would be great when we're talking to people if the reaction was the same as Simon's, where he goes with his brother to meet Jesus. But that's not always the case, is it? We do, however, need to keep spreading the word. And perhaps more importantly, we need to keep living in a way that will attract people to the word. So how are we doing in that regard? Is there something in our lives that we need to change? Are we willing to do that? God wants us to grow continually closer to him. And things that he puts in our lives, things that he allows in our lives, are meant to help us do that. He gave Simon a new name, Peter, even though he knew he was going to fall short. Peter, however, did stick with Jesus. Yes, he did deny him, as Jesus predicted. But he gave his life for Jesus when he realized who he really was. And he died a martyr's death for it. We sung about martyr's death and blood this morning. And Peter was one of them. Verse 43 says, The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. Then he added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's likely that Philip, Andrew, and Peter knew each other. Jesus tells Philip to follow. And interesting, he doesn't say, Do you want to follow? He says, Follow me. Philip does. Philip goes and, goes and gets Nathaniel. And we learn later in John he is from Cana of Galilee. But his reaction is far from positive. Nazareth. Tuh. Nothing but losers there. Just fanatics and false Christs. How could anything good come from Nazareth? Much less the Messiah. Nathan isn't much different from most people in the world then and are now. Right? There's a pecking order. And we think the people in some places are better or worse than those in other places. It's just something about human nature. Always need to find somebody to kind of look and feel we're superior to. 
In those days, Nazareth, Nazareth was low, if not the bottom of the list for many in Jesus' time. And who would want to follow a teacher that came from Nazareth? Likewise, it applies to individuals, regardless of where they're from. Some people have more prestige and status. Others are looked down on. In Jesus' day, the pecking order was clear. The firstborn males got dibs when it came to future opportunities, including status and marital, material wealth. They received most of the inheritance at the expense of their siblings. And there were some practical reasons for this, but it still re- resulted in others being treated much differently. Women were valued less than men, and those who couldn't have children were considered to be of even lower value. The latter were taunted because having children was the key to economic well-being of the family, as well as supporting broader societal needs. God, however, think, however turns things around. He doesn't look at stature or position in society. God looks at the heart. God uses the weak, the poor, the most unlikely people to accomplish his work. And the Bible gives us numerous examples of this, where the younger sibling, sibling is giving the blessing above the older ones. God used Joseph, youngest of 12 siblings, to save people from famine. He chose David to be king above his seven brothers. Sarah and Hannah, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, had children very late in life at a time when they were past the age they were even capable of having children. And yet, he used them. The first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection were women. And of course, we have Jesus himself. Born not to a king or a wealthy family, born of a virgin into a poor peasant family. And oh, where did the angel Gabriel visit Mary? Where did Mary and Joseph travel from to Bethlehem for the census before Jesus was born? Nazareth. Despite his initial reaction, Nathaniel accepts Philip's invitation to come and see and goes with him to see Jesus. Perhaps someone here finds themselves in the same spot Nathaniel was in. Christianity doesn't make any sense. I must admit, it really does contradict what the world teaches about getting there on your own, on your own merits, on your own work, on your own worth. Christianity is God coming down to us, not us working up to him. You can't do it. And if you're in that situation today, I'd invite you to have a chat. Go for a coffee, go for a meal, whatever. Take some time to study. But I invite you to come and see what it's all about. Let's discuss why Christianity is a valid option. And what are some of the challenges you see with accepting it? When Jesus sees Nathaniel, he compliments him, calls him a true Israelite. Nathaniel is an honest man, like what some might call a street shooter. What you see is what you get. Now, Jesus said he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree, and people often spent time in prayer, meditation, and study under these fig trees. They were common in those days. But Jesus blows him away by telling him he saw him there. And Nathaniel does a 180 from his initial reaction of nothing good can come from from there to you are the God. You are the Son of God. You're the King. And he was only partially right. He said he's the King of Israel. Only partially right in that he's the King over anyone 
in the world. Anyone that chooses to accept him. In Genesis 28, Jacob was on his way to Haran. And we read in verse 11, When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jesus tells Nathaniel, he shall see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now we don't know what Nathaniel was thinking when he ascended the fig tree. Maybe he was reflecting on this verse, on this passage. Jesus was, still is, fully man and fully God. Just as he knew Simon and Nathaniel, he knows each of us. He knows what's in our hearts. And he is the way to the Father, or the ladder, if you will. Again, the thing with Jesus is, he comes down the ladder for us. We can't get up the ladder ourselves to get to him. And as the Lamb of God, he paid the price for our sin. As we sang, he lived, he loved, he died, he was buried and rose again. Trust that for those of us who know Jesus as Savior, that we just grow closer to him, that we would help teach and point others to him. And if there's people here who've never come to the realization that he is the way, the truth, and the life, I'd encourage you to consider that this morning. Let's just close in prayer, shall we? Our Father, we again just pause. Thank you for your goodness and love. We just marvel at your grace for us. We thank you for sending Jesus to us, Father. And Father, we pray that you would just help us to be closer to him, draw closer to him. And indeed, if there's anyone here who doesn't know them, Lord, we pray that they would just come and see. See what life in Jesus is all about. And help us all, Father, just to honor and glorify you in our lives. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.